Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Welcome to another bonus edition of The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. As I mentioned the last two Tuesdays, I'm making available to listeners of The Thriller Zone the audiobook version of my thriller, The Poser, starring rookie detective Pat Norelli. I hope you've been enjoying it, and this week I'm happy to present, free of charge, chapters 51 to 75 of The Poser. In this portion of the book, Pat's discovering all the players in the puzzle and getting closer to discovering who the killer is. So without further ado, I present The Poser. Chapter 51, Close Call. Elizabeth coughed, violently gasping for air. (coughs) (coughs) She spewed a mouthful of bloody spit. Vigorously struggling, she had to dislocate her shoulder in order to free herself from how Bobby had bound her. Ah! Her vision disappeared for a brief moment. Several torturous minutes later, she was free and rubbing her wrists and ankles. Terrified, her body fought to regain control, her mind to regain composure. Then, after several quiet moments, her eyes shot to a bookcase on the other side of the room. Gingerly easing off the bed, she crossed the room. Then, moving aside several plants, she retrieved the hidden camera and turned off the recorder. (coughs) Two can play your game, Bobby. Chapter 52 Skin Flicks Stuart and I were on our way to meet our next suspect, Thomas Showalter, a.k.a. Tommy Showoffer. He was not only one of the youngest CEOs in town, but also one of the most successful studio executives in all of Hollywood, thanks to his enormously successful online porn channel, Skinflix. According to recent stats, the porn industry was worth more than $100 billion a year, and the United States accounted for no less than 15% of that market. Showalter had gotten in the game early, combining life savings with his expertise of using a handicam. Merge that savvy with the cash from several horndog venture capitalists and they were off to the races. Setting up fast websites and cheap cameras with broke actors proved to be a winning combo and made Tommy and his team wealthy beyond their dreams. Tommy was flashy, dressing more like a 70s pimp than a studio exec. I had seen pictures of his house, which was the personification of gaudy, even his car, a lipstick-red 2.5 Pagani was over the top. Tommy Showoffer. Hmm. It fit. Their offices and studios were housed in an enormous warehouse in the San Fernando Valley, on the border between Reseda and Northridge, an area known as the epicenter of porn. It was also home to the devastating 1994 earthquake. While news sources referred to the Shaker as the Northridge earthquake, locals knew the real quake epicenter was located in Reseda. What made its location unusual was the family community of Reseda had 15 public schools and five private ones, a number of mom-and-pop strip malls, and the one business which accounted for a handsome slice of those billions made in porn. We arrived at the Skinflix offices at lunchtime, 
and were greeted by a receptionist named Candy, of course. She enthusiastically shared with us how lucky we were to spend time with Tommy because he was often traveling the world to find new channels of distribution for his first-class smut. Today was special, as employees, cast, and crew were on hand to celebrate his 31st birthday. She invited us into an enormous dining area where 200-plus gathered around an enormous phallic-shaped birthday cake, complete with two big balls and shaved chocolate for hair. Classy. After watching the group celebrate their boss for a good four minutes, Stuart and I joined Tommy in his office, which overlooked a gigantic maze of small offices, medium-sized studios, and larger edit bays. Notice how the size of the rooms are commensurate with the importance they play, he joked. We both gave a polite nod before taking seats in front of the desk. A huge slab of white marble set atop four columns. Tommy started to light a cigarette but hesitated, looking at us. Offering matching frowns, he returned it to a drawer. Okay, what's on your nasty little minds? My expression? You're a loser, but said, Thank you for your time, Mr. Showalter, and as your receptionist told you, we're here about Meredith Johansson. Do you think she was a supporter of your business? Looking away, he pursed his lips. Mm, good question. I'm not sure she was as big a supporter as she uh, liked what it provided for her. By way of me, and for the record, she was good at it. You mean she was good at supporting you for what you provided her, or good at performing for your camera. The cat just ate the canary. Oh, you're good, detective, and I'd say both, which is kind of what I said. She saw the benefit and didn't argue. Hell, I gave her the down payment for her house as a gift, and I used her in one of my early films, you know, back when she was new in town. Really, Stuart added, scribbling in his notepad. How did she feel from the standpoint of integrity with the news she covered? News? <laughs> Tabloid bullshit, and she knew it. She was also a filmmaker. And who do you think funded that little hobby? So you gifted her the down and funded her documentary. He held up a hand to stop me. Not all, just seed money. How much? A hundred, he said, removing a pack of nicotine gum from his desk. Stuart leaned in. And the house? Five hundred, he said, putting two pieces in his mouth. So, six hundred K total, mm-hmm. And she repaid you, I led. He grinned but said nothing. But you have, what, a thousand actresses who would do it for practically... The attention? Yes. If she's making a good living as an anchor and following her dreams of filmmaking... Same hundred-year-old story, detectives. He smiled at us both. To be famous, Stewart said. Tommy touched the tip of his nose. She wanted to be a star. And the only way she could really set herself apart was her favorite flavor of stardom. <laughs> And uh, what flavor was that? S&M. Mm, same story, Stuart began. Fresh off the farm girl rolls into town searching for her place in Hollywood. Right, look, we all know that Fifty Shades really turned up the heat. Pun intended on that whole scene. And while the dark web has a much darker version of all that shit, her interest was in boundary pushing and attention getting... Besides being a bit of a twisted Nelly, she had a fair amount of bats in her attic. Stuart wrote something down. And the people she hung out with, especially that, he used air quotes, director she's been fucking on and off along with a half dozen others. We remained silent. Well, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out someone somewhere was going to go too far, he fidgeted. 
Speaking of, are you among those half a dozen others? <clears throat> Let's just say I primed the pump. I saw our need, fueled the desire, then moved on. Tommy flicked his tongue between the inside of his cheeks. Detectives, I hope this has been helpful and thanks for celebrating my birthday, but I really must get back to work. You, uh, you should come to my house in the hills. I'll have my receptionist give you the details. He stood while we remained sitting. What? Just one more question, Tommy, Stewart said. Where were you on Oscar night and with whom? He sat, took a deep breath and said, I was hosting a small party at my house. Several close friends and a couple of uh, employees all watching the show, comparing it to our awards show. Which is what? The AVN Awards, Adult Video News. It's three weeks before the Oscars. Very similar glamour, just fewer clothes. I want to back up, Tommy. So you were entertaining friends, but had you seen Meredith that night? He shook his head. When was the last time you saw her? Alive, anyway. He shifted his eye and said, Uh, hmm, one day, early last week. Why? Like I said, we had dated. It didn't really uh, work for me. We broke up, but stayed friends. We often had brunch together. We loved the cabanas at the Beverly Hills Hotel. You know, eat, drink, and get merry. I leaned forward. Can you think of anyone who would want to kill her? Hmm. Maybe, he chewed the inside of his mouth. I mean, if the reason was revenge. What? Stuart asked. Who? I added. He turned to Stuart. Everybody has a button they don't want pushed. And Meredith, for all her kindness, not only knew everyone's buttons, but would push them, often relentlessly, in order to get what she wanted. Then he faced me. As for whom, I can think of at least three. I nodded, go on, holding up a finger, Bobby Shapiro. Those two knew how to cook on one another's nerves, always arguing. Plus, everyone knows Shapiro's a raging lunatic. Between the steroids and her depression, hell, it was an insanity cocktail from the get-go. He held up a second finger. Sharon Gladstone. I don't know which bitch is crazier. They used to be roomies, and let's just say they shared it all. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm -hmm. Look, we all shared a piece of Sharon at one time or another, but damn, MJ was always holding something over Sharon's head. If it wasn't real estate or men, it was who could get more work done, you know, to look better, if you know what I mean. Again, a constant dysfunctional soup of neuroses, Jesus. He raised a third finger. And me. Stuart and I looked at one another. You see, she and I got involved in some, hmm, arguments over footage she wanted to use in a documentary. Stuff that could have gotten a lot of people in trouble. When I asked her not to use it, she held it ransom. Anyhow, as I threatened her, sorry to admit, and she threatened me back. Silence. But I promise you, on a stack of Bibles, I did not kill her. Chapter 53. No Go. Do you suppose Tommy's ever even seen a Bible? I smirked, not waiting for an answer. And is it just me, or do you need a shower after that? I said, leading the way back to the car. Stuart shook his head and snorted. Hmm, doubtful, and agreed. Hell, I was uncomfortable even sitting in that chair. Steering with one knee while polishing my sunglasses with a hot breath in the tail of my shirt, I said, 
I'm thinking we have enough to add him to the list, especially since he pretty much just added himself. No doubt, I absently said, running the rest of the list in my head. Okay, who's next? Stewart flipped open his pad. We got another director, this one uh, film, a Bruce Panic. In the interest of time, I ran down how I had researched Bernard Bruce Panic last night and learned how he was the youngest director to command a major budget with major actors, all without a degree, any connections, and without a sizzling reel. Word was he had major moxie and a unique way to tell a story. I told Stewart how they called him the next Scorsese because of how he made his last film for just over $10 million, but the box office returned nearly $200 million. Needless to say, his real estate was red hot. And given the fact his agent told me he had been shooting in Vancouver for the past three weeks, it was easy to rule him out and remove him from the list. I'd say that's a wrap. <laughs> see what I did? So who's next? Yeah, I, I did see what you did there, detective. I say we head back to the one who started all the fun. Chapter 54. Shrewd Awakening. As Bobby put on his shoes, Dr. Tercell poured a cup of tea for both of them. He watched Bobby while slowly dipping a tea bag in and out of his cup. So here's why I wanted to see you, Doc. You gotta help me. I mean, my anger is getting the f*** out of hand. Besides, I don't even know who I am when I'm with the ladies, you know? I understand, Tercell gently smiled. Anger is a powerful force. Look, I know I've got issues. Big surprise. But this sexual addiction thing you told me I have, man, it is getting, or maybe gotten, out of control. Tercel raised an eyebrow. And now the cops want me some kind of bad. I've talked to my attorney and we feel, well, he feels pretty confident. What they have is circumstantial. Thing is, he stopped to take a sip of tea, grimaced, then set it down. What is it, Bobby? After a long beat, he leaned close and looked Tercel dead in the eyes. Fact is, Doc, I've been bullshitting you pretty much the whole damn time. Tercel sat expressionless. Yeah, this shit ain't working. Better yet, you're not working. What? This old dog and pony show of yours not digging it, man. I'm telling you, might have helped your girl, but not me. Tercel frowned. Besides, I'm the one who won't be working if I don't figure out a way to fix this thing. Tercel relaxed his shoulders, attempting to send a comforting message to his patient. We can discuss everything you need. What I need is you to help me figure out how to handle the heat. Bobby, what exactly do you mean? Really, Doc? My jail record? Death of my father? Come on, all the shit I've done? And Meredith? They locked stairs. With our patient privilege thing, the police come knocking. You can't share anything I say in these meetings, right? That is correct. Right, so I got an idea. You can call it an ultimatum, but that sounds kind of heavy, you know, between friends like us. But what I need is for you to help me get removed from the eyeline of Detectives Norelli and Brown. You feel me? He licked his lips and took a slow breath. Or else... Bobby, I'm confused. What do you mean, handle the heat? And what do you mean, or else? Bobby's eyes suddenly appeared lifeless. Uh, I'll hand the video over to them. Clearly confused, he asked. Bobby, what video? Don't play stupid, Doc. You have too many initials behind your name for that. Tercel remained expressionless. 
Look, I don't want my face smeared all over those shitty tabloid shows. Tercel grinned. Like the one you work for? I have to. It's my job. Doesn't mean I enjoy having my personal life fed to the public. Spoken like a true closeted addict. So what? I am. And so are you. Tercel shook his head in disbelief. Not really, Bobby. And besides, we're talking about you, not me. Bobby stood and walked to the window. You gonna help me or what? I will. After all, you and I are in this together, aren't we? Bobby watched the hazy sunshine cast irregular shadows outside the window. A similar shadow seemed to fall over his face. Yeah, well, I have an excuse. How's that? My father was a mean, drunk son of a bitch. Tercel joined him at the window. Well, I suppose I do, too. <laughs> yeah, right. How do you figure that? My mother was a mean, drunken bitch. Silence lost in life outside the window. Bobby managed a crooked grin. Hmm, we're a couple of sick puppies, huh? A long beat of silence before Tercel said, You hated your father, so you killed him. Bobby's head whipped toward Tercel. He quietly added, Perhaps I had a similar hatred. Through a squint, Bobby nearly whispered, You told me she killed herself. Oh, she did. You know what your gift was, Bobby? He shook his head. Besides a reason, you had control. What do you mean? You could leave. I couldn't. Oh, bullshit. You were 18, a man. And I was 13, just a boy. Bobby looked down, wrinkling his brow. Tercel patted Bobby's shoulder and said, Today was a good session. I'm glad you came in to talk with me. You've continued to make remarkable progress. Bobby's expression was part peaceful, part confused. Come on, let me walk you to your car. In the parking lot, they stood next to Bobby's car, studying one another's expressions before he got into his car. It was good to see you, Bobby. Looking up at Tercel, Bobby started the car, his tiny smirk clouded by a dead stare. Yeah... Not sure what else to say, Doc, so guess I won't. Putting the car into gear, he sped away. Tercel watched as Bobby disappeared from view. His mind began to spin, replaying the thousands of hours he had logged with patients, most of whom had similar neuroses. He had watched Bobby's expressions for months, guiding he and his girlfriend's therapy. But in those last moments, he didn't fully understand the blank expression on his patient's face. The one thing he did know was Bobby's unstable mental condition. Chapter 55 Turnabout Bobby redlined his Porsche through every gear and every block as he made his way to Sharon's house in the hills. His testosterone was also redlining as nervous energy, rushing endorphins, and pure fear coursed through his body at breakneck speed. Adding coke to the mix certainly didn't help. How did I get so wrapped up with that woman? His mind was in overdrive, his paranoia accelerating. How did I let it get that far? He needed to slow down before he crashed and burned. What if someone saw me? Bobby would be at Sharon's in less than 20 minutes and couldn't let her see him this way. It would throw her into a fit. 
and she was already wound tightly enough for both of them. The light at the corner of Sunset and Beverly Glen Boulevard turned yellow. He checked his speedometer and considered trying to beat it, but in the blink it took him to eyeball the rear view, he saw a police motorcycle in the distance. Quickly downshifting, he was able to avoid slamming his brakes and slowly pulled to the light. Taking a deep breath, he checked both the rear and side mirrors, his eyes flitting back and forth between the cop and his dash. When the light turned green, he pulled away, but instantly heard the chirp of a siren. Looking in his rear view, he saw the flash of red and blue as the cop came from behind a car. Shit! Bobby pulled through the intersection, then to the curb. Glancing at the floorboard, he saw the black handle of the 38 peek from his jacket pocket. He checked the mirror. The officer had dismounted and was walking toward him. Quickly shoving the gun from sight, he folded the jacket over. As he sat up, he peeked at the side mirror just as the officer placed his hand atop his gun. Bobby let out a deep breath. Approaching, the Beverly Hills police officer's name tag read Taggart. License and registration, please? Yes, officer. Bobby learned long ago when in sticky situations like this, it was best to be polite and say little. Taking the two pieces of information, Taggart said, Be right back. Flipping down the vanity mirror, Bobby checked his nose for coke, wiped his brow, then downed a bottle of water. Two minutes became four. Four became eight. He texted Sharon, running behind. Hang tight. Eight minutes became ten. Sharon texted, no worries, not going anywhere. Then ten minutes became fifteen. Bobby's eyes flicked from his watch to the rear view, then to his surroundings and back to the cop, and finally back to his watch. He felt like a sitting duck and didn't want to be seen by anyone. Plus, the coke was wearing off, a headache was closing in, and his patience was waning. But he knew better than to make sudden moves or get out of the car. Seen crazier shit happen over less. According to his pricey timepiece, it was 22 minutes later when Officer Taggart finally returned. Where are we, Officer Taggart? Bobby asked politely. Taggart eyeballed him for several long, cool seconds. Mr. Shapiro, I'm writing you a citation for speeding. I spotted you several lights back when you stomped on it, clocked you doing 65 and a 45, and that's not cool. Frankly, dangerous. Bobby wanted to punch the guy, but held tight. Yes, sir, you're right, and I apologize. Officially, I'd say your speed was well over 70, but if I did that, I'd have your license and be walking home. So I guess you could say I'm giving you a break. Bobby took a slow breath and said, Thank you. I'm also citing you for reckless driving. What? For passing a stopped school bus four blocks back. You passed as his blinkers came on. Bobby's pits were starting to steam, but he held steady. Yes, sir. Lastly, I'm adding negligence because you appeared to be texting while driving. But Officer Taggart, I wasn't. The officer didn't budge. Besides, it's not illegal to text. Isn't it? Taggart frowned. Bobby stopped. Sir, what's the big hurry? I'm uh, late for a production meeting, he lied. Uh-huh. Must be an important one. What are you, a big-time director or something? Bobby wondered if the officer recognized him. Uh, yeah, actually, I, I directly... The ticket will be $1,475 minus court cost. We'll see you in court on the date circled, Taggart said, handing him the ticket and walked away. Maybe it was the raging testosterone of the drugs and booze wearing off, or his feeling disregarded. Either way, Bobby couldn't help himself. Hey, don't you think, he shouted up the window to Taggart's back, you could uh, cut me some slack? Officer Taggart had only gone a few steps when he stopped and slowly walked back. Staring a hole through Bobby, he said, Sir, what I think is, you're a reckless guy, and this is the end of my day, so what do you say we leave it there? Good?
Yes, sir. Yeah. Good idea. And trust me, son, it could have been worse. Have a nice day, he said over his shoulder. Waiting until he was out of earshot, Bobby spat, Could have been worse for you, asshole. Chapter 56 Before 20 minutes earlier, Officer Taggart stood next to his bike just behind Bobby's car. Taking out a cell phone, he dialed a number. Waiting to connect, he watched Bobby watch him, his eyes flicking between his rear view and side mirrors. Norelli. Detective Norelli, this is LAPD. Officer Taggart, I wanted to give you a heads up. Taggart continued to eyeball the back of Shapiro's twitching head. I, uh, heard about the Johansson case. Hmm, damn sad. Uh, yes it was. How did you know that- We were neighbors, kinda. She lived a handful of blocks away from me. Small world, huh? Yeah, no doubt. Thing is, I heard through the grapevine you had that uh, TV director Shapiro in your sights, right? Yeah. Actually, he's our prime suspect, but my partner and I are having a hard time finding him. Well, I know where he is. Really? Where's that? Sitting about 20 yards in front of me. Just pulled him over for speeding. (sighs) Driving a school bus yellow Porsche 911? The same. And you're... At Sunset and Beverly Glen Boulevards. Writing him up. You want? I could drag my feet. The phone went silent for a moment. Uh, detective? Sorry, just talking to my partner. That would be great. The thing is, though, is it... Might spook him, huh? True. He watched Bobby continue to fidget. We're 15, maybe 20 away? Hey, Norelli? Yeah. I'll tell you what. Chapter 57. After. Bobby slowly pulled away from the curb and into the traffic, heading eastbound. Well, that turned out well, Stewart said as we pulled from a curb across the street, now heading westbound. Making a U-turn, we passed a grinning Officer Taggart. He nodded, touching his helmet visor. I returned a nod and a smile. Passing the Beverly Hills Hotel, I said, Yes, it did. You know, I've lived here my whole life and never even seen that place. Maybe I'll take Janine there after the baby comes. You know, a little adult getaway, he winked. You only live once. Bobby hung a left onto North Beverly. I wanted to keep a safe distance without getting caught by the upcoming light, so I got up on the car bumper in front of me. Squeezing through the amber and onto the other side of the light, the driver flipped me off as they turned left onto Lexington. Nice for your boy to give us a solid, huh? Well, yeah, not actually my boy. So, left on Beverly or right on Coldwater? Quick, before he turns, winner gets the next beer. Um, Coldwater. Beverly, Bobby shot up Coldwater Canyon. Shit. Did he make us or just getting cocky? I was one or the same. Maybe both. Something popped in my head. Hey, do me a favor and see where Sharon Gladstone lives. Huh? Well, think about it. Oh, yeah. At the top of cold water, we hit Mulholland Drive. If I didn't hang back far enough, he would see us as he made the switch back onto Mulholland, so I pulled into a random driveway and parked. Uh, 2711 Beaumont Drive, Stewart said. It's just up ahead. Mm-hmm. Quite the detective, I grinned, backing out of the driveway. Fortunately, two cars separated us, but I could easily see his car. Having no idea how long the street was that he just took, I hung back. Stuart double-checked his phone. Uh, Beaumont's up there to the right. I saw Bobby's car crest the hill just before disappearing. Pulling Stuart's phone closer, I pointed, Uh, guessing that's a short street there? Okay, so I'll park at this overlook and give him a few minutes to, you know, make plans and such? <laughs> right. And such. Chapter 58. Bobby Trap. Bobby entered the room with his arms wide, looking as though he didn't have a care in the world. Where have you been, Bobby? I rang your phone, Sharon whimpered. 
He looked disheveled while she was dolled up like Saturday night, that is, if Saturday night included a see-through robe, mink slippers, and a one-piece undergarment that looked like a form-fitting and sheer nighty. He took her by the waist and picked her up like an oversized doll. I'm sorry, baby, I am sorry, but I got caught up at work. You know how it is, raiding season and all. Setting her down, he wrapped his arms around her and they passionately kissed. She whispered, It's been too long. I'm here now. Stuart and I gave them several minutes, then pulled into the driveway, blocking his car. As I walked by it, I looked inside and saw a couple things I recognized. In the bedroom, Sharon was riding Bobby like a cowboy atop a bucking bronco. Choke me! They continued toward the mountaintop. Choke me! Heat began to increase along with the torturous anger. Come on, you Neanderthal fucktoy! Stop being a pussy and choke me! Something clicked in Bobby's head, and he lifted her until she fell to one side, dropping her like a rag doll. Wrapping both hands around her neck, he squeezed. She writhed at first, but it quickly turned frantic. She struck out at him, but he was too strong, and she was getting weaker by the second. As her eyes bulged and face turned deep red, suddenly someone pounded on the front door. Bobby and Sharon sat on an oversized couch. The contrast of the elegant living room with their disheveled appearance in the light of day and by two detectives was entertaining. She was wearing most of a robe, he only pants. Stuart and I stood across the room. I know it sounds silly, but it's not what it looks like, Sharon said, lighting a cigarette. Really, Sharon? Because judging by the bruising on your neck, I said, and the scratches on your back, Bobby, I'd say it went well beyond foreplay. But that's just what it was. Just play, Bobby snarled, and none of your fucking business. I looked to Stuart, who said, Thing is, Bobby, it is our business, because we're taking you downtown to discuss the murder of Meredith Johansson. Bobby stood up much too quickly and yelled, Fuck you! You've got nothing to pin that on me! I was startled as his explosive outburst echoed off the high ceilings, the most reaction we'd seen since meeting. My hand was on my gun. He didn't budge and just stared at us. Put on a shirt, Bobby, Stewart said, removing handcuffs from his belt, or I'll be happy to use these. We knew because of his size things could get ugly fast, and we didn't want to shoot him, just arrest him. You heard him, Bobby. Let's go. He looked to Sharon and smiled, then turned back to us and said, Fine, but I want to speak to my attorney. No problem. Good, then you'll get nothing from me. On the way to the car, I took out a copy of the Miranda rights and read them to him. When I was done and we were heading by the car, I asked, Hey, mind if I look in your car, Bobby? The look on his face said, Hell no, but he answered, Uh, I got nothing to hide. As I approached the car, his smirk disappeared. Uh, no, you can't. Now see, Bobby, you can make this easy and we'll be on our way to the station in a jiff. Or make this difficult and blah dee blah dee blah The fuck I care you have to work harder. What she's not saying is, Bobby... You say yes, everything will be easy breezy. We'll take a quick look, then head in, ask a few questions, and you'll be on your way. But if you want to be a hard ass and make us go to the DA and eventually a judge, well, you can see how complicated it could get. His expression went from confusion to complacency. Ugh, okay, it's all yours, he said, leaning against the car. And a good choice, I said with a plastic smile. On the floorboard, I found a jacket and opened it. Using a hand towel with the 24-hour fitness logo, I picked up a 38 revolver. Hey, Bobby, what's this? 
As hard as he tried, he couldn't hide the look. It's not mine. Belongs to a friend. She wants me to keep it until she gets more confident with her shooting, which I'm teaching her to do. <laughs> right. Getting a nod from Stuart, I leaned back in and pushed aside an oversized gym bag. That's when I saw something that caught my breath. I turned back to Bobby, who was giving me a death stare, and nodded for Stuart to join me. He leaned in to investigate while Bobby and I engaged in a stare-down. Sharon stood very close to him, mumbling something I couldn't hear. Well, what do we have here, director boy? Stuart said, taking a large baggie and raising it in the air. Inside was several dozen small, golden Oscar statuettes. Chapter 59. Reasonable Doubt. Booking Bobby was going to feel good. Maybe because it was my first big case. One not influenced by my brother or steered by my father. Sure, Captain Nelson was throwing me a Hail Mary trying to keep me from self-destruction, but it would be our hard work bringing a murder to justice that would be remembered and hopefully rewarded. Then why was I continuing to feel anxious? I pondered this while staring at Bobby through a two-way mirror as he sat at a table in the interrogation room. I was waiting for Stewart to arrive with paperwork before we got started. Part of it was protocol, part dog and pony show, but mostly drama. Stewart entered the room with two cups of jet black coffee and a folder under his arm. Mmm, it smells like burnt oven mitts and is stronger than asphalt, but it's something, he said, handing me a styrofoam cup. I took a sniff and dropped it in a trash can. He handed me a folder. Here, take a look. Stewart had run the record on the gun. Bobby wasn't lying. It was registered to an Elizabeth Conroy who lived on Bundy Drive, just off Sunset Boulevard in Brentwood. Quickly scanning, I read aloud. Oh, Conroy works as a physician's assistant. Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center bought the gun from... I looked up to find Stuart grinning. The straight and arrow and the circle of coincidences just keep coming. Wacky, right? All right, according to the report, uh, Richard Moffitt, salesperson on duty at the time, said she purchased it in the past six months, paid cash, has been attending night classes alongside her boy. Oh. I say we talk to her. Something could turn up. I handed him the folder. Holding up a hand, Stewart said, No, hit the last page. Blue tab. I turned to find a purchase order on Hollywood Mole letterhead for 1,000 tiny plastic gold Oscar statuettes. Shit! Truly. Well, at least he doesn't know we have this, I said, tapping the folder against my palm. My phone rang. I was about to silence it when I looked at the screen and answered, What's up, Jackie? Hey, Pat, got something for you. It hasn't been the easiest, what with the Santa Ana winds kicking up. Jackie, sorry to interrupt, but we just brought in... Bobby Shapiro? My eye shot to Stuart. Yeah, he's in the interrogation room right now. Why? Yeah, all right, baby, that's why I'm calling. We have a boot print from the scene. Yeah? Tell me, can you see him now? Yeah, I said, putting the phone on speaker. He's not 20 feet away. Tell me, girl, does he have big feet? Looking through the glass, I checked under the table. His legs were stretched out, like he had all the time in the world. Yeah, they're big. Hey, Stu, what size of boot does he wear? Stuart looked. Oh, I'm a 13. He's got to be at least, I don't know, 14, maybe 15. Nice boots, too. 14, maybe 15, Jackie. And fancy, as you can see, according to Stu. Okay, girl, that helps. The prince is size 15, has a lugged rubber sole and a rounded toe, but a square heel. We looked at one another, then eyeballed Bobby's boots. Uh, hey, Jackie, it's Stuart. Uh, was the sole newer or worn, and can you shoot me a picture? What's up, bro? Yeah, not brand new, but certainly not old. And of course, give me five. 
he gave a thumbs up and I said, this is perfect timing, Jackie. Shoot it to us and we'll get back in touch. Thanks. As Stuart was opening the door, I said, let's go shake that boy's tree. As we entered, Bobby sat still, staring straight ahead at his reflection in the glass. Uh, let me guess. You two found out I wasn't lying about the gun and that I'm a part-time instructor at the straight and arrow? Yeah, yeah, we learned all that, Stuart said, looking at his notes instead of Bobby and continued to stand while I took a chair. Yeah, and how about those Oscar trinkets for a commercial shoot I was doing in Malibu last week? Big deal. I was surprised he was being so chatty and laid back. Either way, we would let him continue. Suspects' nervous energy often get them talking and often tripping. Hey, Bobby, you're right. We found all that. Unfortunately, not much led us to you, I lied with a pleasant smile. I gotta hand one thing to you, Bobby, Stewart said, standing at the edge of the table and taking a silk hanky from his breast pocket, then polishing his glasses. You are one sharp-dressed man. The TV business must be good. Yeah, people judge you by your clothes. Returning his glasses to his face, Stewart opened the folder without looking up. Yeah, the suit makes the man. Uh, and your physique, he said. Yeah, especially in this town. Stuart took a seat, accidentally kicking Bobby's feet. Oh, sorry, bro, my uh, feet are always getting in the way, he said, looking under the table. Hmm, damn, I thought my feet were big. Nice kicks. Gucci? Uh, no, Berluti from Paris? <laughs> Gucci's are for pimps. Whew. Damn, half my month's salary. Look, can we just get this fashion show over? You and I both know everything is checked out, so what the hell am I doing here? I began tapping the table. Bobby, do you recall when Detective Brown and I approached you at your job? He stared, saying nothing. His breathing had calmed. Right, and you recall when I said there was an easy way to do this and a hard way? And you just stared at both of us, acting like a douche, kind of like you're doing right now? Still quiet, he stared at a spot on the wall behind and between us. Well, we tried to be amenable then, but after we spoke with several of your co-workers, nearly all of whom had very little, if anything, nice to say about you, we started to get the picture. Then we checked the surveillance footage of your workplace and saw you hit, rather violently, not one, but two of your co-workers. He whipped his head toward me just for an instant, caught himself, then returned his attention to a staring spot. It could have just been one, now that I think about it, but I'm certain you've hit more, especially Meredith. Yeah, I bet you're wondering where you slipped up right about now, aren't you? Without looking at me, a faint grin appeared. You got zip. Opening a folder, I pretended to read for a long, slow minute. We know you were with her the night of the murder. You were directing the Oscars and had spent a lot of time with her in rehearsals. Arguing, I might add. I continued looking at my notes. According to several eyewitnesses. Whatever, I was directing the fucking show and she was one of the contenders. We know you were on again and off again for the past several months, even though she had been seeing a new boy. Nothing. And we have a confirmation by her therapist that his focus shifted. And I cut a look to Stuart from the corner of my eye. Stuart grinned. Yeah, seems uh, Dr. Tercell said you two had a very... He paused to flip through his notepad. He used the phrase, what was it? Complicated relationship. Something about it being, let me see, fraught with anxiety and periodic estrangement. Still nothing. Um, hey Bobby, is that like psychobabble for gay? 
Bobby's nostrils flared, his jaw clenched. It was a nice stab, trying to rile his manhood, but he didn't move an inch. I cut in. The depth of the cut to her neck? Nobody, and I mean nobody, believes she killed herself. More of nothing. But with your strength, your anger, and your blind jealousy of seeing her... With all those other men, jeez, that must have driven you mad. Come on, Bobby. I mean, no way she could off herself like that, right? But you could. A huge outdoorsman like you. Easy, right? His nostrils flared again, but he wasn't playing. Yeah, there are plenty of big, sharp tools for a chicken-shit Neanderthal like you to get a job done like that. He was simmering now. You can find straight razors like that anywhere on the internet. It was not me. No one said a word. No one made a move. I leaned forward a quarter inch and quietly said, Hey, Bobby. Neither of us said anything about a straight razor. I want my attorney. Chapter 60. Foul Balls. Stuart and I had taken the necessary precautions well before we followed and approached Bobby. In fact, not 30 minutes before we got the call from Officer Taggart, we were discussing our need for an arrest warrant. Imagine our surprise when Taggart called and laid a huge gift right in our laps. The bonus was that I'm good friends with, and former love interest of, one District Attorney Hector Magnus. That put us one step ahead of the proverbial curve. Add the Honorable Judge Sam Norelli to the equation, and we were sliding into base for a home run. Bobby would appear before the court and be charged with no less than a $1 million bond. I was pretty sure his attorney wouldn't be able to do much better. And since murder is a felony and he could easily flee, the judge would make the bond as painful as possible. The bad news for Bobby was he lived under the shroud of a checkered past and a precarious present. And when you factored in the additional allegations against him by the HR department at the Mole, he was in deep. The good news, which may or may not play in his favor, he is a seasoned director with a solid reputation in the industry. He also had a powerful and well-respected stepfather in the same business. One hitch in the giddy-up was the tiny yet supremely significant element called reasonable doubt. Back at our desk, Stewart and I breathed a metaphorical sigh of relief. He smiled at me like he had just won the lottery. I felt differently. I was happy to have Shapiro in custody, but the whole story wouldn't actually be over until he was locked up. Is it just me, or does it feel like a good time for a cocktail? Stewart said, licking his lips. I was just about to agree when Captain Nelson came barreling down the hall toward us. Stewart saw my expression and said, What? Too late, I whispered as Nelson approached. Children, please tell me you're putting this puppy to bed, Nelson barked before sipping coffee. Yes, sir. Well, we have him awaiting arraignment and bail should be posted immediately. As for evidence, we have... Wait, Nelson held up his hand. Just tell me if it'll stick. Sir, Stewart asked. Will it stick? Uh, yes, sir. We have a boot print that's sure to match several testimonies from various sources who absolutely confirm his violent behavior, a renowned therapist who will provide solid confirmation as to our accusations, and we have video of several of his violent outbursts. And more recently, Stewart added, we arrived at his home to find him nearly strangling a woman to death. Nelson held up a hand in Stewart's face. Yeah, 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 I got all that. What I'd rather know is, he continued sitting on the corner of my desk, what do you think, Norelli? Sir? I mean, it's your case. First big break and all? Chance to show you got the goods? Do you? 
uh, sir, exactly what Stewart said. We, we have a great deal of evidence, plus a few extras that lead us to... What extras? As I looked at Stewart, he held up a bag. These. I'm not blind, Detective Brown, and while I'm sure they're just like the one found in Ms. Johansson's hand, it could be a plant in any one of several directions. Or, hey, wait, maybe a coincidence. Sir, I don't really believe in... I know you don't believe in coincidences, Norelli. Neither do I. Nor do I believe in the Easter Bunny. And I certainly don't think it was suicide, as I said from the get-go, if you'll recall. But what I do believe is... He tossed his empty cup in the trash and held up a finger. Forget the statues. Two, match the effing boot to him. Three, be sure his therapist is a lock. And we'll say so on the stand. By the way, who is he? Dr. Darius Tercel? He stared at me. As in, I nod. Well, super fucking duper. That'll either be a great coup or a coincidence. I know, I know. But hear me out. It will work to our advantage. Stuart and I have met with him and feel extremely confident. Uh, sir, waving me off, he stood and headed for the door, saying over his shoulder, Just make sure you get something concrete, Norelli. Chapter 61 Baby leave. About that drink, I said, trailing off, trying to catch my mental breath from Nelson's tirade. Stuart and I were numb. We felt this close and yet so far away. Once the demise of Bobby hit the press, more employees contacted us confirming his violent behavior, and more than a couple were happy to rat him out. However, only under the umbrella of anonymity. We began running facts in hopes of finding something we may have missed. Just as we were getting in the groove, Stuart cell pinged. Looking at the screen, he read the text. Mm, 911. Oh, shit. What? The color in his face drained. Um, that's the first sign. Of? Things to come. He finished looking at the screen, licking his lips with a nervous smack. Hello? Uh-huh, yeah, mm-hmm. Oh, shit. Okay, right. Right, okay, I'm on the way. Yes, yeah, see you. What? The office. Oh, you mean, uh, uh-oh, oh shit. Okay, right. Okay, I'll just meet you. Hello? He stared at the screen. She hung up. Well? Huh? Well, from all the uh-huhs and oh shits and yeah rights, I'd say you were, uh, having a baby. Standing up, he began frantically looking around. Okay, where in the hell is my- What? Keys? Where are my keys? I pointed to the desk right in front of him. Right. Okay. Hmm. Oh shit. All right. I'd, I'd better be going. Okay, I, I gotta go. Several co-workers with an earshot stood up and clapped. Well, I'll be damned. Stuart's a daddy. Chapter 62. Deep Sleep. As happy an occasion as it was, the timing of Stuart's maternity leave couldn't have come at a worse time. We were fine-tooth combing clues, and I was without the net of my partner. At my desk, with most of the shift gone, I stared at my notes thumbtacked on the wall. Several ideas bounced around my head like a racquetball court. The boot cast, the statuettes, despite what Captain said, the common denominator of Tercel, and my personal dangling participle called Fat Frankie. The boot seemed obvious. The statuette was a perfect calling card. And while it was obvious I liked Dr. Tercel being the caring man who was helping me navigate mental speed bumps, plus the fact he was well-liked in the community and had an impeccable reputation, he was mysterious. And that mystery made me oddly nervous. Had he been married? Children? And what schools did he attend? Tossing my notebook aside, I googled his name and instantly found his websites, along with several newspaper articles about his work. 
There were links to articles about his appearance on local news shows, plus several hits where he had accepted an award for a wide variety of honors. I also learned about his starting a suicide prevention foundation and saw where he had promoted his books at local book events. Next, I kept the search the same but switched to images. There I saw Tercel posing for many of the awards I'd read about. There were other pictures of him attending sporting events as well as many photos of him with a variety of beautiful women attending glamorous Hollywood functions. One in particular caught my eye. The Oscars, just days ago. I was about to move on when a headline got my attention. Dr. Darius Tercel hadn't missed an Oscar in 40 years? In another, Dr. Tercel shares his passion for the quintessential award show. Hmm. Many of the top articles originated in tabloids or local shows, so I began tracking him to older Oscar shows. And that led me to scan the best pictures and their respective years. I found a different article, but with a similar theme, which stated he had attended every premiere since he was born? That led me to even more photos of him with a different woman at every Oscar show. There he was in 1976, wrapped in a blanket and being held by a woman I assumed was his mother. A weary-looking man stood next to her. The old Hollywood Reporter article featured a people-to-watch section. It read, Genevieve Turkel, an up-and-coming starlet in her own right, joins thousands of adoring fans for the Oscars at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Hollywood. This year's enormous hit film is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, starring Jack Nicholson. Love that. Mrs. Turkel is seen here with husband horror movie actor Dwight Turkel, happy to be celebrating with their 10-week-old son, Darius. Genevieve said, if my son is going to follow along in his parents' footsteps, he better start networking now. <laughs> I caught myself smiling knowing the therapist I sat across from was the same baby in this photo. Already I knew several things about the doctor I hadn't known before. His parents were or are still Hollywood actors. He's a huge movie buff and it appears he's been quite the ladies' man. Scanning other Oscar years, I stopped at the 1978 winner, The Deer Hunter. Hmm. I recalled how much I liked the film starring a young Robert De Niro and Christopher Walken. Still scrolling, I came to Terms of Endearment and reminisced where I was when it won in 1983. <laughs> Five years old is where I was, I grinned. I was about to close the window when a headline caught my attention. Young starlet Genevieve Turkel starring in the B-movies, Creature from the Deep Black Sea, Hot Women in Cold Cells, and Beast from Terror Town was found dead in her Bellar home early this morning? Authorities reported it as a suicide following a celebration at the Oscars at the Dorothy Chandler. I stopped reading, but continued to shake my head. I found it hard to believe in one moment Darius's mother was celebrating a once-in-a-lifetime event and in the next was dead? I searched to find a picture of Darius. And there he was, handsomely dressed in a tuxedo and backstage as his mother's date. What the hell? As much as I wanted to call Stuart, he had his hands full and it... It could wait until morning. There's a great little coffee shop just around the corner, so I headed out. Twenty minutes, two coffees, and a cheese danish in hand later, I was back at my desk. The only noise in the precinct was someone typing in the corner. In an opposite corner, the television played a local news station. Second shift was well underway, and I kept moving. Within minutes, I was logged into our homicide database, typed in her last name, and added the parameters of suicide and Bel Air for cross-reference purposes. Lucky for me, the entire system, dating back to electricity, had been updated. Seconds later, I was reading her autopsy. The cause of death was an overdose of booze and pills, a mixture of Valium, a.k.a. diazepam, and chloropramazine, otherwise known as Thorazine. Whoa. Now there's a recipe for a deep sleep. 
Opening an attachment, I saw a photo of the suicide note. It appeared to be a woman's handwriting. Dear Darius, I am so sorry to have left you, but I simply cannot go on any longer. The days have grown dark, and I feel it would be better if I sleep. I'm sorry. All my love, Mom. <laughs> oh, I stopped, then read it a second time, thinking it would make more sense. Hmm, no such luck. Having lived with a shrink in my former life and growing up with a mother who relied on what she called mother's little helper, I knew when you started mixing prescriptions with alcohol, it became a lethal concoction. What if she didn't mix them? My inner detective whispered. As my mind returned to Tercel, I couldn't imagine how that incident must have single-handedly devastated him. I also wondered how it affected him later in life. You know, how it affected his father's career and their lives in general. With that, I googled Dwight Turkell and up came Wikipedia with a picture and a short bio. Let's see, Dwight David Turkell, born October 3, 1950, an American actor who starred in the cult films Dawn of Evil, Twisted Mother, and Swamp Children, died of an apparent suicide following a long bout of depression he leaves behind. What? Oh, man, 15 years old and both parents are dead from suicide? Shocked, I created another search in the database. Within minutes, I had a hit. Someone had found Dwight with a gunshot wound to the head. The weapon used was a revolver. I opened a photo attachment of the suicide note, which had been typed on a typewriter. Dear Genevieve and Darius, I'm so sorry, but I hate not being able to find work. Perhaps I'm not cut out for this. Genevieve, I am devastated. You no longer want me. It's more than I can take. Please forgive me, Darius. Love, Dad. My head was spinning as I considered his father died when he was 10 and his mother when he was 15. I caught myself shaking my head. No wonder he became a shrink. Chapter 63. Shitstorm. I do not give a steaming pile of shit what it takes just that you fix this. And I don't mean tomorrow. I mean now. Bobby shouted over the phone at Andrew Jacobitz. Jacobitz had been his attorney for nearly a decade, and the only man Bobby had ever known to stick by him during all the HR shit he had marched through over the years. Furthermore, Andrew was one of only three people who knew the real story behind the death of Bobby's father, what the court called justifiable homicide. Bobby continued to rant about all the things he and Andrew had covered a dozen times over the past month, and Andrew continued to let him spew. When Bobby was accused by authorities that his father's death was premeditated murder, Jacobitz went into action. And to that end, he did exactly what the law required of him. He objectively proved beyond all reasonable doubt that the victim, a.k.a. Bobby's father, intended to commit life-threatening violence to he and his mother. His father's homicide was legally ruled, quote, blameless and distinct from the less stringent criteria authorizing deadly force in stand-your-ground rulings, unquote. In other words... Bobby walked. Andrew continued to endure Bobby's vitriolic rage holding the receiver from his ear and interjecting an occasional, right, I understand, in order to keep the clown going. After all, he was on the clock and watching the digital meter on his phone tick by the minutes. About the only thing Andrew had difficulty tolerating, more than future clients complaining of his astronomical hourly rate, more than current clients whining about how everything took so long, and more than past clients dragging their feet on past payments, was people who yelled at him. His mother yelled at him as a child. His father yelled at him as a teenager. His ex-wife yelled at him during the tough years. His current wife yelled at him when not getting her way. 
and now one of his best clients was yelling at him, and he despised it. It's enough to make me want to fire this asshole, he thought as Bobby droned on about the system being unfair, judging a man on circumstances and not evidence. No, you know, I want to shoot him. He imagined as Bobby continued to whine about cops walking in on his sexual playground, demanding to search without warrants. No, hell, I want to light him on fire and watch him burn, he imagined. But he wouldn't, because by the time this case went to trial, knowing what he knew, the detectives had uncovered how the press continued to hover, and the visibility of all the lovers, he would have made so much money he couldn't count it all. I can retire if I want to he pondered as Bobby vomited rage and anti-Semitic comments through the receiver. Are you listening to me, you fucking Jew? And what Bobby heard? Click. When Bobby instantly rang back, Andrew had a secretary tell Bobby to call back in 10 minutes. Then 20 minutes later, after Andrew figured his client had cooled off, he took the call. Hiya, Bobby, he said before Bobby could speak a word. Let me tell you, if you yell at me one more fucking time, I will not only hang up on you again but I will walk the fuck away never to speak to you again. Are we clear? Perfectly clear? Yeah. Good. Now, let's talk about what's next. Like civilized human beings, gentlemen that we are. An hour later, Bobby left the conversation satisfied that Andrew was going to do everything in his power to get most, if not all, of the charges dropped. As for Bobby's $1 million bail, Andrew explained it was just P.O.D.B. And as much as Bobby hated the price of doing business, he understood how the system worked. Besides, he knew how to get that money back and had no intention of telling Andrew any of those plans. Andrew, on the other hand, had plans of his own. His proverbial chess pieces were on the board and he began moving those figures into play. He surmised that between the relationships he had cultivated over the past three decades, along with the invaluable litany of favors he had accrued in his favor bank, he would not only have Bobby exonerated as a free man, but would be free himself from the Neanderthal's disgusting behavior, once and for all. Considering his next greatest move, Andrew told his secretary to hold all calls, then sequestered himself in his office. Choosing not to use the landline or his cell phone, he took a burner from a locked drawer. He enjoyed using untraceable cell phones and would use a different one each time he made a call, then toss them into an industrial shredder. He dialed, spoke to a secretary, and was connected within seconds. Judge Norelli. Hiya, Samuel. It's Andrew Jacobitz. How are you? What's on your mind, Andrew? Look, I won't keep you long. Just wanted to discuss something that uh, affects us both. Okay. Let's just say we share a problem that needs solving. One that shares a common denominator. Mm-hmm. Andrew heard the judge take a deep breath. All right, just a second. Next, he heard a muffled conversation followed by silence and checked to see he still had a connection. Okay, you have my undivided. Good, look, I'll cut to the chase. I believe I have a solution to a particularly sticky situation you find yourself in. <laughs> uh, get in line, Andrew. You have any idea how many sticky situations I find myself in on any given month? I'm sure. But I'll play along. Hey, what, pray tell, could this one be? I can make your, uh, mob situation disappear. A long silence followed. Andrew wondered if he had been disconnected again or if the one-off phone had run out of minutes. He then heard a click and... Okay. Uh, what was that? I switched to a private line, Nurley said quietly. How do you know about that? Andrew grinned. 
It's my job to know a lot more than anyone else. You know how many people your daughter's department has sent away over the past several years? Huh? People I represented? Of course I do. I helped groom her. That same daughter is cooking some plan to help you out, right? More silence. Okay, okay, I get it. Silence speaks volumes, but you have to know I have people on the inside and, well, playing both sides. Uh-huh. And several happen to owe me big. Who? Yeah, right. Look, we've known one another a long time, and even though we don't see eye to eye... On many things? However, we do agree on a few several key things. Like? Like your daughter's too smart to get nicked because of your mistakes. Nah, sad, but I agree. Andrew knew he had to be careful. You don't want to put this play into motion right before you retire, Judge. It could go all sorts of sideways. You have, what, 40 years of impeccable service, only to finish with a single yet major mark on your legacy? That would never be forgotten. Agreed. All right, so what's on your mind, Jakovich? You're not a nonprofit. Hell, you're barely a nice guy. <laughs> I'll ignore that. I have a case that's going to get a lot of attention very soon. Bobby Shapiro. Exactly. He's innocent and... And you're high. So, yeah, save it, Judge. And for the record, you should have set that bell higher. Would have made a nice going away gift. Hey, before you even... Keep your robe on. You and I both stand to lose if we're not careful. And it's not like you don't already know, but we both have so much to gain. <laughs> that is, if we keep our heads on straight. Enough of the cloak and dagger, Jacobus. What do you got? Smiling, Andrew said... I see where your kids get their smart mouths. Yeah, you should meet their mother. Chapter 64 Swirling Dervish As I sat across from Dr. Tercel, I was a mixed bag of emotions, intentions, and who knew what else. Staring at my hands, I looked up to find Tercel smiling. You seem a bit fidgety today, Patricia. Yeah, lots going on. But really? It's just the usual. Usual is good, right? Nadia and I kept moving. Uh, thanks for keeping this appointment. Stuart's, Stuart and I had plans to follow up with you, but he got called away to baby duty. Hmm. I'm happy for him. He'll make a good father. Figuring it was best to just simply jump in, I said, So I was reading last night, research and such, and saw that your father committed suicide when you were just ten years old. I hadn't known her so long, but the reaction I just saw felt like heartbreak. His eyes fell to his lap, where he uncharacteristically began to wring his hands. I, I'm sorry, Dr. Tassel. I, I shouldn't have... No, 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 it's fine. But this is your time, not mine. Please, continue. No, Dr. Tassel, this is important. Would you please tell me what it felt like? I mean, what you must have gone through? Helping me understand you will... Help me understand me. Mm. That was a long time ago, he nervously smiled, crossing the room for a glass of water. I was uh, ten. It was late winter, maybe early spring. It was just after the Oscars. Both my parents uh, were actors, so I never missed a chance to attend. In fact, <laughs> I've never missed an Oscar in 42 years. Having just learned that, I felt we shared a secret. He took a seat, handed me a glass of water, and said, I had come home from playing with some neighborhood friends. Um, I recall like it was yesterday. Riding my bike into the driveway, I saw the garage door was open. 
It was always closed, especially when Dad's car was parked in it, as it was at the time, which was odd. Anyway, I approached the garage. I saw broken glass on the passenger side of the garage floor. First thing that went through my mind was that we had been robbed. That's when I saw him. His head was thrown back and half-cocked to one side, laying against the headrest. A portion of the right side of his face, right about the temple, he said, touching the area, was gone. The gun was still in his left hand, in his lap. Evidently, the caliber was large enough to go through both his head and the passenger window. He stopped to dab the corner of his eyes. Sorry. Doctor, I can't imagine. Can I ask you something? Yes, he said, straightening his posture. Was there a note? (sighs) Yes. It seems like a silly question, but how did you get through that? No, it isn't, actually. Everyone needs to understand our coping mechanisms. He took another sip, then set aside his glass. How? Slowly. And not very nicely. He went on to discuss the note, telling me it was typed on an old Smith Corona typewriter his father kept in his home office, which, in fact, Tercel had kept. As he revealed more, I asked more. He continued to answer. We discussed the obvious impetus for him setting up his Save Yourself Foundation, a nonprofit that's raised millions to help people recovering from attempted suicide and he shared how successful it had grown. He went on to speak about how his mother used to berate his father, about how he was a lousy actor and would never amount to anything. That pushed his father to withdraw, and eventually his social drinking became everyday drinking. The yelling turned into throwing, and eventually into hitting. But hardest of all was how mother emasculated him. After he was gone, she started her own downward spiral into depression, taking pills to sleep, pills to wake, and still others to cope with depression. She exacerbated the situation by mixing it with alcohol. Something in our conversation triggered an old memory about my ex-husband, and before long I was sharing how, during grad school, he began to morph into another sort of person. His obsession about learning the inner workings of the mind seemed to overshadow anything else, including me. It's as though his studies became him, or the other way around. Tercel's expression was intense. Hmm. That's often the case, especially in clinical psychology. Call it getting too close or digging too deep, I'm not sure, but it happens. And to more than you would think. In fact, and I hesitate to share this for fear of going too deep, but while attending grad school, a study partner of mine did that very thing. What do you mean? Often, while studying a particular field, in this case suicide, students can get... Well, there's no better way to say it than obsessed with trying to learn what makes someone take their life. How far down a rabbit hole does one go? And what are the impulses to take us, rather them, that far? For a moment he seemed to disappear. Doctor? Oh, sorry, I was just recalling my study partner. She had had similar tendencies toward that very dilemma. The whole time I knew her, she spent so much time in research and trying to fix her screwed-up childhood. It was... And, well, she hung herself. Without thinking, I sucked in my breath and covered my mouth. I think we've drilled deep enough for one day. Are you kidding? I completely understand, and I feel for you. Excuse me for a half second, he said, disappearing behind a wall next to his beverage counter. I glanced at the books on his shelves. Metaphysics, hypnoanalysis, 
pharmaceuticals, suicide, death and dying, and transactional analysis. Seconds later, he was back in his chair. Sorry, looks like we have a few more minutes, and let's please spend that remaining time on you. Vulnerability breeds intimacy, I said without thinking. Hmm. Uh, what I meant was, hmm, you're actually blushing, detective. <laughs> I find it honest and thoroughly refreshing. Sharing the laugh, I gathered my things but remained seated. Dr. Tercell, before I go, I need to ask about a client, and I understand the doctor-patient privilege aspect, but we're so very close with this investigation, and I need your help navigating it. Okay. When did you first sense Bobby needed your help, as a patient? You know I can't address. Uh, yeah, I understand. However, he's accused of her murder, and while delicate, you could potentially help us with the case. His expression showed struggle. All right, tell me this, and it's a simple yes or no answer. In your professional opinion, do you think he has suicidal tendencies? Squinting, his eyebrows pinched as he sighed. Oh, I'm just not comfortable with this, Patricia. Okay, let me try this. What if you were to pass me on the street and we were to discuss that well, we wouldn't? But if you did, but why is that important? Because I need to know, I said leaning forward. Let's just say you knew he had an emotionally charged past. Yes, and a troublesome present. Right, common knowledge. And it wouldn't surprise me, he said with a nervous smile, that if things continued as they are, hmm, he could possibly be prone to such. Thank you. That's speaking merely as a professional. I was about to speak when he added, but then isn't everyone prone? To the possibility, are we? Of course. And isn't it good to come to terms with our feelings? Oh, you're starting to sound just like me. That's good, right? <laughs> Is it? We laughed. Gathering my things, I walked to the door, stopping at his beverage service to throw away my coffee cup, absently noticing something in the trash can. Before I could process it, his hand on my arm turned me toward him. By the way, today's session is on the house. Absolutely not. Standing closer than usual, I could smell his cologne. The musk was alluring. I insist. After all, we spent more time talking about me, which is not the reason you're here. I suddenly felt warmer than before. Uh, but that's not part of our agreement. Please, Patricia, he said, taking my hand. Trust me when I say I get paid very well for my time, and I can certainly comp an occasional session. I was several blocks down Santa Monica Boulevard when I realized my mind was wandering. Passing Cedar sinai Medical Center on Beverly, I thought about Stewart, wondering how he and Janine were getting along with the newborn. Skirting Fairfax and landing on Melrose, I recalled how Shay and I would spend weekends shopping for hip clothes when she was in high school. As curiosity tapped the back of my mind, I needed an answer. Dialing Tercel's number, he answered within a ring. Dr. Tercel? Hi, Doc. It's Norelli. Sorry to bother, and I know I just left you, but I have just one quick question. Have you got a second? Uh, sure. What is it? I'm certain you mentioned it, but what school did you attend? And just curious to see if you and my ex were at the same school at the same time. After a beat, he said, I received my undergrad in clinical psychology from San Diego State, then my master's in mental health counseling from USFCA. San Francisco? Nice, I said. Yeah, he went to SFSU. Good school. Yeah, but no USF. USF was private, and SFS was a commuter school. One was pricey and prestigious, 
the other cheap and charming. Uh, but actually, it's all about how you use it, especially where you do your training. Uh, Patricia, I hate to be rude, but my next client just arrived. Do you... Sorry, 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 sorry. Of course, y you get to it. A and thanks for your time. Bringing off, I considered his schools. They were legit. And the degrees? Earned. I knew from past experience the hours they had to put in were no joke. I should know. My ex was rarely around in later years, instead spending most of his extracurricular hours studying someone else. Chapter 65. Evidence Schmevidence. Attorney Jacobitz leaned against the window, watching all the worker ants scurry about their workdays, wondering if they had any idea how their lives would play out. My client did not kill that anchor. He loved her, Andrew said. He's just damn crazy. It was up to Judge Norelli to make the next move. Yeah, but I've seen and heard more than just evidence. Schmevidence, Andrew said. It's all circumstantial and you know it, or will know it soon enough. Let him ride. Hell, at the very worst, give him six months of soft time. Put the fear of God in him, or slap him with a ton of community service, which I promise he will gladly do. And here's another thought. Have him pay damages to the family. He can afford it. Norelli liked that idea. Families often suffered the most, while benefiting the least. You know he won't be able to go back to the network. <laughs> Doubt that'll break his heart, especially with his girlfriend committing suicide. Murder! No, 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 that's what I'm saying. There is enough to make it suicide. More silence. Andrew waited. Thing is, it's my daughter, and she... Sorry to interrupt, Judge. I know she's got a lot to prove, but she can catch the next one. Uh, she isn't one to fold. Not fold... Just, uh, slide. Not much for letting shit slide, either. Just like her old man. What can I say? Taught my kids to fight for what's right. Then again, he held the pause like a freeze frame. We're having this conversation, right? Right. Look, I'm sure you taught your kids the difference. But the thing is, right sometimes becomes wrong. No, wrong is always wrong. Maybe so, but you and I both know these are different days. Hell, your son's in the epicenter of the world where deals just like this one get done every day, right or wrong. Keep him out of this. This is our agreement. Nobody else has to. Hell, nobody else can know. Fair enough. And just to refresh, you let him walk, I'll help you out. Simple as that. <sighs> What's your plan? Is it true you've been having conversations with Fat Frankie? Are you kidding me? Like I said. All right already. You've got eyes everywhere. Yes, I did. Why? Just trying to drive home the fact that I can handle this. This what? Just to be sure we're on the same page. Now Andrew was growing impatient. The thing Nikki needs to disappear. Yeah? I can do that. Personally? Are you fucking kidding me, Judge? I got a secretary who practically wipes my ass for me. No dirt happens within a zip code of me. So no, not me, personally. But trust me, I'll get it done. Disappear, voila. Who says that anymore? Says what? Voila. I do. I see that. So? So what? So do we have a deal. You'll make this go away, which will keep my family completely safe from here on out. And all I have to... For Christ's sake, don't say it out loud. He was within ten yards of scoring a touchdown. Up until now, it could all be called conjecture. Finally, his partner in crime released the deciding answer. <sighs> yes. Is that a yes, yes, or a... It's a yes. Good. Good. 
The next day, Bobby was free on bail, but not allowed to venture outside the city limits. The first thing he did was go into work to talk to his boss. When he showed up to odd glances, Julia King being the first, he wasn't thrilled to find co-workers eyeballing him like he was a convict. He let her know things were going to be fine. Really? How? Yes, and first of all, Bobby said sneering at co-workers through the glass of her office, I did not kill Meredith, no matter what you heard or will hear. I know that. I saw the way you looked at her. And as sappy as it sounds, it was the closest thing I've seen to love since I moved to this fucking town. Bobby looked at her with an expression she had not seen before. It made her feel sorry for the big lug. I don't know how she felt, but I could see in your eyes it was the real deal. Yeah, and as much as we had our troubles, you know I'd have done anything for her. Which is why I'm going to kill the fuckwad who killed her. So, suicide's not even? <laughs> no, I have a pretty solid idea who did it. It's just a matter of putting the pieces into place so that when they trip up, he'll basically fuck himself in the ass. She frowned. Do you have to sound like such a Neanderthal? Don't fucking say it. Chapter 66. Gone Fishing. Returning to the precinct, I instinctively looked for Stuart's car, then realized he was likely changing a diaper. Back at my desk, I set aside a coffee, opened Meredith's file, and logged into my computer. Last night, I had fallen asleep going through Tercel's websites, both a practice and a suicide foundation. They were informative, but I was exhausted. Much of the psychology of suicide was drier than I imagined. Besides, I was having a tough time staying awake, until I made an interesting yet macabre discovery. Come to find out there were more ways people killed themselves than I'd ever imagined. The list I came across, The Most Lethal Methods of Suicide, listed the number of suicides by methods. Published in 1995, 291 laypersons and 10 forensic pathologists rated the lethality, time, and agony for 28 methods of suicide for 4,117 cases of completed suicide in Los Angeles County in the period from 1988 to 1991. The number one choice by all three parameters was a shotgun to the head. Hmm, that was different than a gunshot to the head, which was rated number three, with nearly three times the agony. Rounding out the top ten, cyanide explosives hit by a train jumping from a great height, hanging in car crash. The oddest methods included household toxins, asphyxiation by plastic bag over a head, or setting yourself on fire. By the time I got to risk cutting and drug overdosing, I had all the suicide ideas I would ever need. Needing to change my mental scenery, I grabbed my mug and went to the lunchroom for a fresh cup. En route, I texted Stuart, Hey partner, how's mom and baby? Big Daddy, I need your help. Call when you can. Pouring a fresh cup, I thought of Bobby. What if he killed her then staged it to look like a suicide? Back at my desk, I thought of Tercel. How must it feel to spend your whole life wondering if you weren't enough to stick around for? Trying to imagine that pain, I scanned my notes again, noting how it was ten years later when his college study partner killed herself. And how bad must you hate life to hang yourself? Looking into Bobby's past for the umpteenth time, I ran across a page of notes from several of his teachers. Comments revealed he had a terrible temper, was always getting into fights, and was suspended a number of times for hitting his classmates with a variety of props, from baseball bats and hockey sticks to golf clubs and football helmets. And when he wasn't taking out his anger in sports, he was evicted from school for putting a classmate in the hospital with a hunting knife he carried. 
And according to the file, he severed a major artery in the kid's leg in a fight over a girl. Lucky for him, the school nurse, who had served as an army medic, was on duty and saved the kid's life. Self-defense was what saved Bobby, as the kid was twice his size and with three times the offenses as Bobby. I closed the file and put my feet up on Stewart's chair, letting my mind free fall. It bounced from one of Meredith's co-workers to another, lighting up my brain like an arcade pinball. Their faces came back to me, one after the next, and their stories all told the same thing. Bobby was a bully, he had a bad temper, but he loved the girl. Without Stuart, I didn't have someone to discuss what I may or may not have missed, so I revisited my notorious eight list taped to the file cabinet next to my desk. Eight people had a relationship of some sort with Meredith, whether for months or years. All eight were in calendars across all her devices, described as meetings. Some were semi-regular, and others were very regular. The heading read initials, name, and gauge, followed by a grade from one to eight, from lowest to highest probability. E.N. Elgin Nesbach, doubtful, two. G.J. Gray Jordan, questionable, seven. T.S. Tommy Showalter, possible, six. S.H. Sonny Hoffman, unlikely, four. B.P. Bruce Panic, no exposure, zero. D.T. Darius Tercel, hard to imagine, three. S.G. Sharon Gladstone, accomplice, eight. B.S. Bobby Shapiro, hell yes, nine plus. Knee-deep in contemplation, Captain Nelson ambled in. Norelli, is this heaven? <laughs> no, sir, it's Iowa. I played along. Okay, field of dreams, got it. Seriously, were you here all night or out partying and then thought you'd come in for... He stopped, leaning over for a sniff. Hell, you smell pretty. You were in here fresh. Captain, I'm just... No, 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 wait, I meant to say, he said, looking around. Thank you for coming in, Detective Norelli. It's a pleasure seeing someone work as diligently as you. I looked at him like he was insane. Don't want any of that Me Too bullshit, you know. Get bounced on improper conduct in the workplace. So near to retirement. Wink, wink. I shook my head trying to play along. All good, sir. <laughs> How may I help you? When were you going to tell me Bobby was released on bail? I thought you knew. I'm sure if... Fucking I with you, Norelli. <laughs> of course, sir. But we do have enough to get him convicted, right? Yes. But not really. Right, Norelli? He said, coming closer. Just wondering if you know he had any ideas of scooting out. Always a possibility, sir. Everything's a possibility. What I'd like to gently suggest is that you keep a very strategic eye on him. Sir, are you... Just si saying, he said, pointing to the ceiling. The sooner you wrap it up, the better for you and me. He started to walk away, stopped and looked around, then returned. <clears throat> Can I ask you something? Without waiting for an answer, he sat in Stuart's chair, sliding closer to me. You know, hell, everyone knows. I'm close to pulling the pin, see? And, well, I would prefer to go out with, you know, a bang, a bust, a nail, a discovery, anything. Just so it's big, comprende? A uh, C, he squinted. Being a smartass, are you, Norelli? Uh, yeah, kind of. I wasn't exactly sure what he was up to, but I had enough time in the uniform to know how the system worked and how, if things dragged on too long, their chances of getting solved narrowed. Uh, trying, sir, I planted a phony smile. Diligently. And you're doing a heck of a job, he said, slapping my thigh. Good times. I'll be in my office. Carry on. Next came a text from Stuart. Hey, girl, knee-deep in baby poop. A scrambling to finish honeydews. Give me thirty? 
Smiling, I thought of how he was going to make such a good daddy and texted, do what you must. Next, I pulled up Tommy Showalter's website. It was a veritable soup of sex. Anything and everything you could imagine was there. I'm as horny as the next gal, but this was too much. I thought about it not being the stuff a nice young gal from the Midwest could get just anywhere, except inside Hollywood. Next, I tried to quiet my mind. That worked for all of 15 seconds, so I sent a text to Stuart. Hey, partner, not waiting. I'm coming over. Grabbing my things, I flipped a sign outside my cubicle that read, Gone Fishing. Chapter 67 Head Games Bobby had a newfound freedom, one he didn't even know he needed. Sure, he had to dig into his 401k to post bail, but he figured maybe they were right. It was the price of doing business. The first thing he did was after reading the right act to his attorney was to put his next plan into play. He may not get his $1 million back, but he could get repaid by setting up the guy who made his life a living hell. If his cards were played right, he figured a book deal about the story behind the madness would be made. Plus, he imagined being asked to direct the film himself. Talking about a trifecta, he stared in the mirror. What he most appreciated about his attorney was that Jacobitz never asked if he killed her. Guess that's why he's the best defense attorney in the country. Bobby had gone without a shave for several days and decided to clean himself up. After a hot shower, he checked the time and considered whether to make a move now or wait until later tonight. Weighing the odds, he chose night. Besides, now would be a good time to get other matters out of the way. He thought of all the material he had on his friends. He had spent years acquiring and storing it, just in case he got in a tight spot. He had the most material on his pal Banyan, a Class A pervert who was known for nothing being off-limits. As long as the women were hot and naked and the action was kinky and dangerous. Videos were better than photos and he was willing to gamble on anything if it got him tuned up. He would be the easiest to frame. Tercel was an easy pin as Bobby was around him a lot during Meredith's treatment days and he had learned a great deal both from and about him. Bobby imagined what a twisted little fuck he must be. After all, as he saw it, doctors of the mind were most likely the sickest of all patients. Given his high profile, it could prove to work against him. But Bobby didn't care. He was at the top of his list. Next, he imagined a nut job who was wound tighter than he. Steve, the eager beaver from his hunting and self-defense workshops, was a guy who seemed level-headed on the surface, but Bobby could see him going nuts on a parking lot of people. Dude's always bragging about how much bigger his killing tool is. That made him consider the most volatile tool of all. Sharon. Hot as balls, smart enough to concoct a murder, and manipulative enough to command the right assistance. His only hesitation, he didn't like the thought of losing the second hottest booty call of all. However, she was batshit crazy, and the fact she had a hard-on for both balls and broads made her a wild card. Thinking about who he could irrevocably fuck, his mind went to Julia King. Oh, she would be so easy to frame as the killer. She hated Meredith so much. But in the end, his smartest move would be one of his two closest connections. Gladstone or Tercel. Tercel had method. As a doctor, he could prescribe drugs, making patients do things they ordinarily wouldn't. And he was loaded. Gladstone also had method, was personally well-funded, and as an insider she could get investors to fund projects they normally wouldn't. They both could pay to play, so he flipped a mental coin. Chapter 68 Unknown Caller 
On the drive to Stewart's home, my phone rang. Thinking it was Jackie, I answered without looking at the screen. What's up, biatch? Um, now that's a greeting. Hello, Detective Norelli. Shit. Uh, hi, Dr. Tercel. Sorry. Sorry about that. I was just, I, 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 th- I thought, uh... <laughs> no worries. And I won't keep you. Just need to ask you a very quick question. Shoot. As much as I hate to do this, and rarely ever do, could we possibly postpone our next appointment if we could just push it off two days, same time? It would help me tremendously. Sure, that's fine. Everything okay? Thank you. And yes, I've been asked, unfortunately, at the last minute, to speak at a symposium in San Jose tomorrow. It's part of an adjunct program to my alma mater, and their key speaker had a death in the family and asked if I could assist. Understood. And no worries. I have plenty of work, especially with a partner on leave. We were about to sign off when I took a stab at an impulse. Dr. Tercel, before you go, can I ask you just one quick question? Well, sure. I know this seems odd, but have you ever been married? There was just enough silence I felt awkward. Um, Yes, her name was Claire. She was a lovely gal. I caught myself smiling, trying to imagine what she must have been like. Wait, was? Well, we weren't actually married, but we'd been together for so long. Then, right when she got pregnant, we made it official. I was waiting for the next sentence, but there wasn't one. Dr. Dursell, what happened? Mm, The short story? I was launching my practice while she was planning the wedding, and getting more pregnant by the day, I might add. (laughs) Then a week before her 31st birthday, we couldn't find a heartbeat, and uh, she miscarried. I'm truly sorry. Oh, my. Did you find... No, just that his heart stopped beating. A little boy. (sighs) It crushed us, and, well, she dove into a very deep depression. Dr. Tercel, I am so sorry. I I just can't imagine. Well, I'm sure you didn't ask for all that. That's why I haven't married or had children. Just too much pain. I get it. Now you know why I'm a shrink. (laughs) I get it. Well, I really must go, and thank you again for working with me. I, I don't like changing appointments, but this is really quite important. Holy shit, that was depressing, I thought as I rang off, so I cranked the stereo, hoping Led Zeppelin's rock and roll would distract me from wanting to jump in front of the oncoming traffic on the 405. Chapter 69. Collateral Damage Bobby showed up at Tercel's office 15 minutes before the doctor's last appointment ended. Sitting in the parking lot, he ran down the way in which he would present his scheme for both his Plan A and Plan B. Tercel was his Plan A. Knowing Tercel as long as he had, Bobby was aware of the unique way the doctor could play with a person's head. It often appeared Tercel was one step ahead, which had always pissed Bobby off. He knew it was education and technique which set them apart. However, Bobby was much bigger and way stronger. Taking a long swig of his post-workout drink, a mixture of caffeine, creatine, and benzedrine, it helped him to focus. That, along with the line of cocaine and the steroids he shot up earlier in the day, made him bulge at the seams physically and metaphorically. Bobby saw the light in Tercel's office go dark and felt a rush of adrenaline course through his body as he got out of the car. Just hanging out and enjoying a Beverly Hills sunset, he thought, leaning against his ride. Within seconds, Tercel exited the building and made his way across the parking lot straight toward Bobby, parked right next to Tercel's car. Tercel's eyes were fixed on the screen of his phone, so he didn't see Bobby until he was just several feet away. Looking up, he was clearly startled. Oh, uh, 
Hello, Bobby. Long time no see. How are you? Always the perfect gentleman. Yeah, good. Thanks. You? He thought he saw a flash of fear across Tercel's eyes when he looked around the parking lot. It was empty as the daylight was fading. Uh, good, just in a bit of a hurry. A dinner appointment. But always have time for you. Is there something you need? Actually, there is. I've thought it over and come to a very significant conclusion. With raised eyebrows, Tercel smiled. Okay, I need you to do me a favor. Um, what's that? Then just as matter-of-factly as saying, nice day for a stroll, Bobby said, I need you to take the fall for Meredith's murder. Chapter 70. Turning Point. Two men, one parking lot. A dozen ways things could go south. Both men stared at one another. Any shred of civility had vanished like yesterday's smog. Darius frowned. Uh, excuse me? Standing taller, looking tougher, Bobby smirked. You heard me. You made the mess. You clean it up. Suddenly, Darius broke out laughing. Squinting, Bobby's jaw slacked. Darius was now laughing so hard he had to set down his briefcase and wipe his eyes with a handkerchief. <laughs> Bobby, you, <laughs> you are too funny. That is the hardest I have laughed in a long time. <laughs> Whew, thank you. I needed that. Bobby thought he felt his chemical rush begin to fade. He kept staring, waiting for Tercel to squirm. You're insane. You know how it all went down. You know exactly how it will go down next. You're going to the authorities and admit you killed Meredith. Hell, tell them it was an accident. Tell them you, you didn't mean for things to go as far as they did. That you didn't even know your own strength. Regaining his composure, Darius neatly folded and put away his handkerchief, then adjusted his coat sleeves, releasing a satisfying breath. He looked around before checking his watch, then started toward the driver's side of his car. As fun as it has been catching up with you, Bobby, not to mention you're providing a much-needed laugh at the end of an exhausting day, I must bid you adieu. And as we continue this conversation, he hesitated while opening the rear door, dropping his case on the seat. Never. Still smiling, he removed his sport coat and hung it on a hook. We've had some good times, you and me and Meredith and Sharon. Some of the best, but those good times are gone, and the bad times are just around the corner, Doc. The degree of badness is up to you. So, if you will please wait, Darius barked, throwing Bobby off balance. If you think for one minute you're going to come to my place of business and threaten me with your passive-aggressive and maniacal attitude with an idea so preposterous I can't begin to fathom just how ridiculous you are, well, my friend, you've got another thing coming. With each exaggerated word, Darius had taken a step closer to Bobby so that by the time he finished, they were nearly toe-to-toe. Bobby had never seen this side of the gentle doctor, but he wasn't scared or threatened. In fact, as his anger began to erode, he wondered if he had overreacted. <sighs> I'll tell you what, Bobby. I'll show you I'm an okay guy, which you already know, he said, checking his watch for the third time. However, I'm completely late, and you know how I deplore tardiness. That said, I'm going to leave, but will gladly swing by your home later tonight, as I'll be on that side of town anyway. He opened the door. Or we can meet back here if you like. 
Either way, it's no problem. Just give me, let's say, two hours and change. At that time, we can sit down and discuss this matter further like the gentlemen we are, like the friends we are. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I guess that's fair. Checking his watch, he said, I'll hit the gym for another workout and see you at my place in a couple hours. Say 8, 8.30. Does that work for you, Bobby? Yeah, that'll, that'll work. Good. See you then. He got in, buckled up. With a wink and a nod, he pulled away. Watching his car leave the parking lot, Bobby shook his head and snorted, Smooth little son of a bitch. Bobby was halfway to the gym when he dialed Sharon's phone. Hi, it's Sharon. You know what to do. I'll ring you back when I can. Hey, Sharon, it's me. Ring me when you get this. I need to talk to you about that thing you did for me the other day. I may have a change of plans. Anyhow, just ring me, okay? Thanks. Love you. Minutes later, he arrived at Hollywood's 24-hour fitness, got out and tossed the valet his keys. Hey, Chip, I'll be done in 45. Keep it up front. You got it, boss. Bobby slid him a 20 and headed inside. Chip had already parked the car and was greeting another client when Bobby's cell, tucked in the middle console, rang. Halfway through the third ring, it stopped. Chapter 71 Palm Job Darius and Sharon sat in the back of the palm of Beverly Hills Mainstay, staring at one another like newlyweds. He sipped a rich Italian Barolo while she nursed an oversized gin martini. With one shoe off, her bare toes were inspecting his shin, looking to bypass a sock for some skin. I noticed you were on the phone when I showed up, Darius smiled. Who are you talking to? Just a client, she said, sipping her cocktail. So how was your day? Interesting and full. Yours? Splendid. We have a new show arriving next week, a modern retrospective. Andy Warhol's early work, along with a handsome smattering of Lichtenstein. It's being hosted by none other than David Hockney. Darius watched her fiddle with the olive in her drink, wondering what she was thinking. That's impressive on both fronts. Love Warhol. And Hockney's, what, 82? She continued to suck the oversized olive, pulling it in and out of her mouth between her full lips. He did, last summer, when you and Meredith were getting all hot and sticky. Remember when the four of us decided a trip to New York on July 4th weekend was a good idea? <laughs> we must have been crazy. Thank God we moved the party to the Hamptons. Ah, oh, the Hamptons, darling. Suck, bite, swallow. You are such a tease, he smiled, watching the olive disappear. Mm -hmm. Leaning in, he whispered, and recall how you were in the arms of... Playfully slapping his hand, she pouted. Don't remind me, Bobby can't miss a workout Shapiro. Ooh. When he checked his watch, she brought her face closer. What are you doing? I'm just checking the time. I've got... To, to what? Blow me off? And for whom... Another date? He enjoyed watching her feign hurt, but he also knew she preferred Bobby's maniacal, marathon-length sexual escapades. It's business, love. You know. For him? She pulled back. Of all people. Pouting, she took the phone from her purse and swiped the screen. Speak of the devil. Oh, look, he's rung several times. Tercel checked his phone. A text read, running 20 late. Back doors open if you beat me there. 
She put away her phone and adjusted her blouse to reveal more cleavage. What is it, baby? He and I just need to put a few things to rest, Dursel said, waving to the bartender for another round. That's all. Nothing major. He leaned closer, running a finger along the silhouette of her breasts. But not before you and I enjoy another cocktail. Her body heat was present, but her body language distant. Love, what is on your mind? Ugh, I am... Mm, I'm sure I should tell you. He took her hand. You can tell me anything. True, but maybe I shouldn't tell you this. You love me, right? You know I do. More than Bobby? Yes, more than I love Bobby. <laughs> Frowning, she touched his face and said, You should know what's on my mind. His stomach tightened. We don't have secrets, Sharon. Never have, never will. And we've always been honest with one another, right? The bartender delivered two more drinks, then quietly disappeared. Darius held up his glass. They touched rims, and she took a large sip. That's what lovers do. But Meredith was your real lover. He gently placed a finger against her lips. Sharon, stop. My body may have been with her, but my heart has always been with you. You know that. I do. So what is it you want to share with me about our dear friend? She looked into her drink as though searching for an answer. Uh, he's talking about turning the video into the detectives. Stone-faced silence was followed by a long, hidden exhale. Well, that's unfortunate. I think he'll do it. He's been pretty wiggy lately, more so than usual. He has, hasn't he? Do you know where it is now? A tiny nod, a short sip. Reaching into her purse, she removed a small GoPro camera and slid it across the table. That's it? Yes. That has the f the footage? Another nod. And it's nowhere else? She shook her head. Wait, he doesn't have a backup copy? I know, right? I mean, he's all Mr. TV and shit. It's something about not having the right adapter or something to copy it. I don't know. It's so technical. Said all he could focus on was putting it someplace safe. Which was? A safety deposit box at his bank. What are you going to do with it? Appearing confused, she looked around. I don't know. Sh uh, give it to the detectives? Well, his chest tightened. That was excellent thinking on your part, my love. A very, very smart idea. His bright teeth cheated an inauthentic smile. Thank you. And personally, I think giving it to me was an even better idea. Thank you for trusting me. She watched as he put it in his pocket. Oh, well, darling, what are you going to do with it? His mind was elsewhere. Did you see what was on it? Fear flashed across her eyes. No, he wanted me to, and I started to, but I, <clears throat> I just couldn't. But he told you what was on there, yes? A slow nod before she turned away. Darius, you're making me nervous. Like... I've done something wrong. Darius gently pulled her chin toward him. Kissing her cheek, he whispered, I'm sorry, that was not my intent. I would not do anything to harm you. Everything is fine, love. Seriously. Not a single thing to worry about. He kissed her passionately. 
Pulling apart, she smiled. Mm, much better. I love you. And I love you, he said, nodding to the bartender. And as much as I truly hate to do this, I've got to scoot. While he paid, she gathered her things. At her car, she pulled close, nibbled his earlobe, and whispered, You'll be sorry you're going to miss a long, hot, soapy bubble bath with your girl. Perhaps we could just prolong the wait? And please, let me call you a cab, he said, taking the keys from her hand. Suddenly, feeling hopeful for a happy ending, she straightened up. Don't be silly, Darius. You know how I can handle my splashy cocktails. I was just all warm and fuzzy, she said, taking her keys back. You run along, and I'll do the same. Just text me when or if you'd like to get soapy with your girl. She winked, got in, and drove away, tossing a wave out the window. Chapter 72 Hella Big Lost in thought, Angie drove the cavernous canyon roads listening to smooth jazz on the radio while enjoying the cool night air. It was fragrant with eucalyptus and orange blossom. She had received a phone call before leaving the office, and while she couldn't recall who left the message, she knew she had to see Sharon before getting home. And since her office was close to Sharon's home, the quick stop would make for a friendly visit and a quick bit of business. Sharon was in the master, running a hot bath, sipping a glass of wine, and about to soak when the doorbell rang. Startled, she turned off the water and went to the front of the house. Hello, Angie, said slowly opening the door. What a pleasant surprise. Well, hi, Sharon. I am so sorry to barge in and hope it is an inconvenient time, but, oh, Lord, I was on my way home, passing right by your neighborhood, and I just had to stop on by. Can I ask you just one quick question? It's important and simply could not wait. Uh, sure. What's on your mind? I was talking with Dr. Tercell today to get his opinion about something, and he said you wouldn't mind if I popped by for just a New York minute. Sharon's unease settled at the mention of his name and her hometown. Uh, sure. Come on in, she smiled, motioning for Angie to enter. I was about to take a bubble bath and maybe fall asleep in front of a movie, but I'm always up for a visit from a friend. Walking to the bar, she refreshed her glass and took out another. Can I offer you a glass? Portfolio in hand, Angie followed along. Well, maybe just one teeny tiny little old glass, but only if it's not a problem. Are you kidding? Drinking with a girlfriend on a school night doesn't get much better, right? By the way, how's the real estate business? Business is exceptionally good, she smiled, taking out several papers. In fact, it's the very reason for my rude interruption. Really? Sharon smiled with a frown, handing Angie a glass. What uh, do you have there? Raising her glass, Angie said, I have an extremely handsome offer for your home. Another confused expression. But it isn't on the market. I love this home and frankly have no intention of selling. You do know it's a one-of-a-kind Eichler. With a restoration that took me years? Oh, I do. I do. <laughs> In fact, I don't think I will ever move. Well, Angie said, lifting her glass for a toast. That's why they call this a make-me-move offer. Chapter 73. Baby Monitor. Within minutes, I was basking in the Stuart vibe. Thankfully, I had a partner with whom I could share anything. We sat in his man cave, and the juxtaposition of this enormous man holding a tiny baby was quite the sight. 
Man, I grinned ear to ear. That looks good on you. Yeah, I gotta say, she is pretty awesome. Waving both hands, I said, Come on, come on. Aunt Patty needs some baby love. Handing her over, he crossed to the mini-fridge for two cold beers, and before he could ask, I said, After the day I've had? <laughs> Hell to the yes. Stuart wanted more on my notorious ape, so I drilled down. Sharing notes, it was a close match. He favored Neskbach more than I, and believed Jordan was less of a threat, especially after having met him. When it came to Showalter, he leaned more in his direction than I, and finally, between the two of us, it had come down to four. Showalter, Gladstone, Shapiro, and Tercel. Okay, so maybe it's a bit fragmented, I leaned forward. But there's enough evidence to bring one, potentially two, if not three of them, to justice. A grin at the corner of his mouth morphed into a toothy smile. That's my girl. I know it looks the most like Bobby's the guy, but I gotta tell you, my gut isn't feeling a hundred percent. He tossed his chin for me to continue. And you know I love me some Dr. Tercel, both for what he's done for me and for what I had hoped him to be. But you also said Sharon had qualities for being a perfect fit. Agreed. Twenty minutes of a lengthy call with Jackie later, the three of us arrived at similar conclusions. Shapiro's mania, brute strength, an obvious attraction, and a supposed violence toward Meredith made him the best choice. Concerning her pregnancy, without knowing the father, we were left to wonder. In the case of the yellow chips and dental floss, as was found in Meredith's bedroom and panic room, they may have matched the chewed Dixon Ticonderoga pencils I found in Tercel's desk drawer. While thoroughly unique, that idea isn't particularly solid in Stewart's opinion and Captain Nelson would likely have tossed it out to coincidence. We chalked up Meredith's meticulous home to her OCD, even as much as it felt like a perp obsessed with details, once again with nothing concrete left behind besides a boot print, which yielded zero after a search of Bobby's home, we had nothing. Lastly, after checking city records, I learned Tercel owned two homes. Better put, he resided in the Homely Hills Mansion, a Tony address sandwiched between Bel Air and Beverly Hills, which was registered in his mother's name. He owned a second home in Malibu, just off the Pacific Coast Highway. Hey, are you as hungry as me? Stuart asked, just as I was wrapping a long-winded explanation. I don't think I've had more than a rice cake and almond butter at my desk, uh, whenever it go. Good, follow me. Within minutes and only blocks away, we were standing inside a local Mexican dive, ordering fresh fish tacos the size of baseball mitts. Snagging a couple of beers, we grabbed a corner booth while we waited for takeout. Let me show you what else I found while you were laying around watching Dr. Phil, I winked. Oh, shut the hell up. <laughs> so how about Tercel's father, the actor, turning telescope demonstrator? What? Yeah, little known fact. Couldn't make it as an actor, but liked staring at a different kind of star. So he picked up a gig at the Griffith Observatory. First as a janitor, then worked his way up to telescope guru. Anyhow, the bit parts got fewer as SAG checks stopped coming. He turned to the bottle. She tired of the nonsense. They split over irreconcilables. And one day, son comes home to find father with a 38 slug through his temple. Messed him up pretty good. He sets off on a journey to, my words, not his, find the reason for pop suicide. Okay, so Tercel's what, 10 at the time? Swigging, I nod and turn him page. Five years later, Genevieve Turkel, a promising actress whose son is her date, decides it's lights out on, get this, the night of the Oscars. No, don't even. Yep, the next morning he finds mom face down before heading off to school. Oh man, 
poor kid. For certain. However, don't feel too badly until you hear what's next. His eyes widened. It gets worse? Yep, back to Genevieve. It was an OD on sleeping pills and booze. Nothing like a classic Hollywood exit, but something else. Wait, he said, dropping 20 on the table. We're heading back to the cave. Gotta put this up on the big board. Good, because you ain't seen nothing yet. Chapter 74. Nice Rack. Located in a prestigious Los Angeles neighborhood near Pacific Palisades, Tercel pulled up to Bobby's house. The tall hedges and solid gate made seeing into the compound nearly impossible. Given the gate was open, he circled the enormous fountain and parked behind Bobby's Porsche. Looking around at neighboring homes, he surmised the television business had taken good care of him. At the massive front door of the modern home, he rang the doorbell. Bobby arrived in seconds while a wave of overdone cologne assaulted Darius. Bobby had an easy and serene smile. Hello, Bobby. Hey, Doc, come on in, he waved. Game won't start for a while, so why don't you let me get you a drink? What's your poison? Scanning the enormous bar, he spotted several bottles of scotch. Uh, looks like you're a scotchman, Bobby. I'll have what you're having. Perfect, I am, and you'll like it. On the way to the bar, Bobby tripped. Whoops! <laughs> yeah, so I started without you. Darius was distracted by an impressive array of compound bows and knives on a trophy wall and stopped to admire. Ah, I didn't know you were a fan, Doc, Bobby said, pouring drinks and watching Tercel from the corner of his eye. Oh, I may not know much about these, but I do love the hunt. Bobby handed him a drink. They raised glasses and took a sip. Then he took down one of the largest compound bows and handed it to his guest. Feel how light this one is. Darius set down his glass and bounced the bow in the air. Hmm, amazing, especially considering the pull strength and the freaking speed. Huh, once it leaves the rest, um, rest? Where the arrow rests, right there, see? Just before launch. Intimidating, Darius said quietly, handing it back to him. Huh, not really. You know, once you get used to it, he winked. And dangerous as hell. Clinking glasses, they sipped, turning their attention to the 80-inch television where ESPN played without sound. After a minute of watching without talking, Bobby said, All right, so let's pick up where we left off earlier. We can make it short and sweet, as I'm sure you have plans. Besides, the game will start soon, and I, I really doubt it's your cup of tea anyway. Uh, sounds like a plan, Darius said, finishing his drink. Setting the empty glass on a nearby table, he reached into his breast pocket. Um, Bobby, here's something I'm certain will interest you. The silence was deafening. Bobby's expression priceless as he stared at the camera. How did you get that? I hid it in perhaps not the safest of places. <laughs> Guess Sharon doesn't trust you, Bobby, which is exactly what you should have been doing with me all along. Why go behind my back? We're friends, aren't we? Bobby remained speechless. With feigned hurt, Darius said, Aren't you in the business of shooting and editing trash like this to extort people? Bobby said nothing, but Darius noticed how Bobby's breathing had increased while his eyes hadn't left the camera. And yet, of all things, you didn't create a backup copy. <laughs> After a long sigh, he took a hefty swig. I know, I know, stupid. Jeez, I just didn't take the time. Been a lot of shit happening lately, Doc. Handing the camera to Bobby, he said, You really shouldn't have trusted her, Bobby. 
she was, and is, in a situation well below her pay grade. Bobby looked at the camera like it was a rare coin. Then a smile slowly spread across his tanned face. Yeah, but looks like I have it now, doesn't it, Darius? Yes, you do. And you know why, Bobby? Because I trust you. And as you can see, you can't trust Sharon. But then Bobby, you never could. Don't you know that? That's what I've been trying to tell you all along. You can't trust these women. You can enjoy them for what they can do for you. But truly, they're merely here for your pleasure. Motionless, they stared at one another. As Bobby's brow tightened, he whispered, Bitch. But soon this will all be over and life will return to normal, Darius said, glancing at the TV. Bobby's jaw dropped. Normal? What the fuck, Darius? I'm only out on bail. I'm going to trial for murder. Uh, there's no normal in that? Emotionless, Darius looked at Bobby. They can't touch you, Bobby. It's a ruse. Besides, one of my clients, Detective Norelli, said that... What? Darius was enjoying watching Bobby spin. Yes, didn't you know I'm seeing her several times a week? As a patient? Yes, but that's not important now. You just need to know the things I'm hearing on the inside. They don't have anything on you. Trust me, Bobby. Next month this time, all a distant memory. Bobby stared at the camera in his hand. His eyes scattered. Wait, why should I trust you? Darius stepped closer. Because you know I'm a man of my word. And because, frankly, what other choice do you have? Uh, plenty. Although Bobby stood about six inches taller and packed an extra 40 pounds of solid muscle, Darius was not intimidated. He knew Bobby's Achilles heel. Bobby, have I ever lied to you? Bobby hesitated before shaking his head. Have I ever done anything to hurt you, ever? No. In fact, I've done nothing but to help you. Right? A tiny nod. And show you the love and respect you never had before. Right, Bobby? Another nod. Placing a hand on his shoulder, he said, Then you know, as a man of my word, I want to help you, just as I always have. You know that I believe in you, right, Bobby? A tiny smile of acknowledgement and a matching nod. We both know you didn't kill Meredith. Heck, you'd never hurt a single hair on her beautiful head, would you, Bobby? A tear fought to crowd his vision. Mm-hmm, that's right. You loved her, Bobby. She was your soulmate. You would have done anything for her, am I right? He rubbed his eyes, nodding. We both know Sharon is the real culprit. She was the one who couldn't take Meredith having all the limelight, all the glory. Sharon, the power hitter from New York, wanted to be the queen of L.A. Not Meredith, the farm girl from Wisconsin. We both know Sharon's jealousy just simply got the best of her. She had to have it all. She had to end the competition and the nightmare from which she couldn't wake. Right? Let's be honest. She got tired of being second fiddle to you, to me, and to all the beautiful people in Hollywood. Right, Bobby? A nod. 
That's when she took matters into her own hands by killing Meredith. Bobby's white eyes relaxed, then a scant nod. Exactly. Oh, I'm so glad we understand one another. It's good when friends trust one another. And isn't it good to know all the noise that happened before will actually be seen for what it is? False. And Sharon will take the fall for what happened to Meredith. Not you. Bobby finally managed to smile. Good. Now hand me your glass and let me pour a drink to celebrate our friendship. Okay, Bobby? Uh, yeah. <sighs> Sounds good. Motioning for Bobby to watch the game, Darius refreshed their drinks, watching Bobby in the mirror over the bar, then returned with a toast. Cheers to my friend, Mr. Bobby Shapiro. May you continue to be happy and prosperous for years to come. And cheers to the true mastermind of it all, our girl, Sharon Gladstone. Hell yeah! Cheers to that batshit crazy bitch! Chapter 75 Money Shot Sharon stood frozen in place staring at her new best friend. Holy shit, that's an enormous number. That's double what I paid. Angie smiled. I know. No, actually, it's... More than double what I paid for the house and the renovation. Yes, I know. Look, Sharon, I'll find you another Eichler or a Mies van der Rohe or a Saarinen or a Geary. Or... But nothing quite like this, Sharon said, waving her hand like a magic wand. Seeing Sharon was both tipsy and excited, Angie held up an empty glass. Mind if I have just a tiny little splash more? Then I am on my way, I promise. Absolutely, she slurred, making her way to the bar. Hell, this is a this is amazing. I had no idea and cannot even imagine who in their right mind would even... Does it matter, Sharon? Does it? They saw what you've created, and they simply wanted it for their own. Returning to her drinking partner, Sharon nearly spilled the glass when she handed it over. Ah, oh, sorry. I'm just so taken aback. I mean, who was it? Who is it that wants my home? And, and how did they even know about it? Well, first of all, they knew about it because you have it on all the magazine spreads around town. Mm-hmm. Also, they prefer to remain anonymous. But trust me when I say they're a fan of what you have created and are willing to act quickly with cash. <laughs> That's a lot of cash, Angie. That's a hell of a lot of cash. Indeed, and we can close this entire deal before the end of the week. And you, my friend, will be one of the, hell, the wealthiest women I know. <laughs> I suppose for that amount of money, I can't find another place and, and put all this, she waved to the furniture, in any sort of house I can imagine. Angie took a document and a pen from her portfolio and placed them both on the dining room table. All I need from you is your signature on this one little document and I will handle all the rest of the details. Sharon was having a challenge focusing and crossed the room for a pair of reading glasses. Angie took that moment to pour more wine in both glasses, then sat at the table. Why, Angie, tell me something. What does the document say anyway? I mean, just give me the gist of it. Just that you accept the offer, agree to a cash deal, and will vacate the premises within 30 days. Sharon began to sign, then stopped in mid-signature. Wait, 30 days? How, how can I find a place in that amount of time? Angie patted Sharon's hand. Because I am here to help, sister. That's what I do. 
And if we need more than 30, I can make that happen. The buyers understand the abrupt nature of this transaction and can be flexible. And don't forget, you have three days to turn this down, if you so choose, which I doubt you will. How's that sound? Sharon's shoulders relaxed. That is just fantastic. Are you okay? Yeah, maybe just a little bit too much wine, she said, finishing the signature. And maybe not enough to eat. So if you don't mind, Angie, I think I'm going to excuse myself to a hot bath and call it a night. Of course, let little old me get out of your hair. Thank you for listening to the audiobook version of my thriller, The Poser, starring rookie detective Pat Norelli. I hope you enjoyed chapters 51 to 75, and I hope you'll join me next Tuesday for another edition of the Thriller Zone bonus podcast, where you can hear chapters 76 to 98, the completion of the novel. A quick programming note, please join me this Friday the 27th when my special guest will be true crime writer Caitlin Rother, author of Death on Ocean Boulevard, her latest release. She's also the author of Hunting Charles Manson, Dead Reckoning, and many others. She is a true crimes aficionado. Again, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time as we enter the Thriller Zone. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.